This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, this is Inside Story with Lee Chui Lin and Shamila Ganesan. Tonight, continuing our series on ministry resolutions for 2023, we are focusing on a heavy, heavy hitter. It is the Ministry of Health. First, we discuss what the priorities should be when it comes to public health. And then later, we hone in on the well-being of our doctors. So we want to know what should the MOH focus on this year and what would you change about our healthcare system? What would make it better? Call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08 and uh, to get right into it, so we've been doing small introductions and setups in some ways for the various ministries that we've been talking about, I think discussing the challenges um, that they are going to face, how they've performed previously. And the Ministry of Health uh, is an interesting one to discuss in that context because it is perhaps the ministry that people have talked about the most over the last few years. They have been very much in the spotlight, everything that they've done has been scrutinized. They have also been compared in many ways to uh, what's happening internationally because we've seen various health leaderships around the world tested by the very same thing and the very same challenge. And I think where we're at now is seeing how things recover from that or what we've learned from that. Uh, We, of course, also have very specific local contexts in the sense of, well, I say local context, but that's just because it's something we've been grappling with, this issue of uh, the well-being of our doctors. But really, this is something that we are seeing countries um, around the world also have to deal with. So we've actually had three health ministers in just about three years. Our new health minister is Dr. Zaliha Mustafa, Deputy Lukanisman Awang Sauni. And just, um, just to look at some of the major issues that have popped up in the last few years uh, that have been getting a lot of attention. Uh, one, of course, is the uh, strain on the public healthcare system, including overcrowding in hospitals. Uh, just very recently, stories of patients uh, being stranded for days in emergency and trauma departments by no means the first time this has happened. Um, also, as you said, uh, doctors being overworked and underpaid. Um, and uh, what we've seen um, what we've seen from previous health ministers in June last year, then Health Minister Kairi Jamaluddin talked about the public health care system struggling to keep up with the needs of people. And he called for reform, especially in terms of funding. Um, and last Friday, Dr. Zaliha, the current minister, has proposed extending operating hours at Klinik Kesehatan to relieve the issue of overcrowding of emergency rooms. Um, there are also um, push that has, however, been pushed back to this from government doctors who are saying that the staff at public health clinics are already overworked. Um, Additionally, other things that we've seen happen since the new minister took on her portfolio, Dr. Zaleha also announced that the ministry was offering 4,914 permanent posts for medical officers this year. Um, Again, not uh, something that has both been greeted with cautious optimism because, yes, we are bringing in more doctors into the fold uh, 
giving them permanent positions. However, on the other hand, a lot of criticism saying this isn't nearly enough to uh, contend with the scale of the issue. There's also been a lot of attention paid to the white paper um, that, that's long been discussed and uh, the ministry, or rather the minister has said that the ministry is continuing or currently working on developing said paper, uh, a collective statement on how the health system can become more sustainable and resilient through a whole of government and whole of society approach. Uh, this was something that was championed by former Health Minister Kairi Jamaluddin. Um, the Minister has also said that the Ministry is committed to working together with the WHO for said healthcare reform. The MMA has weighed in on the subject of well-being of doctors and we're actually going to be hearing from them later on in the show, so we'll save it for then. But um, all of which to say, there's a lot to tackle in today's show. There's a lot of ground to cover. That's what we're doing after this. We'd like to hear from you though. What should the MOH focus on this year? What do you want to see happen? And what would you change about our healthcare system to make it better? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we'll be speaking with Dr. Koswi King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition. So keep it here on Inside Story, BFM 89.9. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. It is 6.13 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sharmila. Today, it is the second last of our ministry resolutions for 2023. Today, it is all about the Ministry of Health. And we're asking you, what do you think the MOH should focus on this year? And... Um, what is the one thing, I guess, you would change to improve our country's healthcare? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Speaking with us now uh, is Dr. Kor King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition. Uh, Dr. Kor, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Hello, Lynn and Shamila. It's a pleasure to be back. So COVID-19 uh, was the country's worst public health disaster to date. We're just coming out of it. Um, what strides have we made towards recovering from the pandemic? How do we compare to other countries? That's a great question to kick us off. Uh, one of the first few health discussions we're going to have in 2023. Can I begin by unpacking worst public health disaster, a term that you use, Lynn? It was a disaster only because it happened so fast. However, when you stretch it over a period of time, other things can also be considered disasters, like the re-emergence of polio in Sabah after about 30 years of being polio-free in Malaysia. Another disaster is to say that uh, there are 50% more people who die from heart attacks every year in Malaysia compared to COVID in the last three years. And thirdly, stunting malnutrition um, children who are not being able to access health care services. And these are, shall we call it, uh, invisible or slow-moving disasters that we don't see because COVID is getting all the attention. So while it's true that COVID is the worst uh, public health disaster for the whole world, it's also true that there are many other hidden and invisible diseases like mental health, like aging, like stunting children, all of which are not getting the requisite uh, attention. Nonetheless, Lynn, let me turn to your question. Your question is, what strides have we made uh, after the recovery and how do we fare compared to other countries? So Malaysia has fared uh, generally well compared to other countries. If we look at metrics, for example, of uh, uh, total deaths per capita, total cases per capita, and also the um, utilization of our health system, that's a fancy term. What it actually means is whether or not our hospital system and clinic system has been stretched. So I think we've done okay 
um, perhaps slightly above average uh, compared to the global, um, so other countries around the world, we must adjust for a bunch of different factors like the size of the country, the resilience of the health system before that, and also how much money that we have spent on our health system. But I think we can say that uh, Malaysia has done above average, uh, slightly above average to at average uh, compared to other countries uh, for the uh, wealth of our health system and also the money that we put in. In terms of strides, we opened in Malaysia uh, gradually since the year 2020, which has been great. Our vaccination programs uh, have been very, very successful for COVID in 2021 and 2022. Second, thirdly, is to say that health has become a major priority that no political party running for elections can ignore health anymore. That it cannot just be about national security, national integration and job creation. Health is becoming very, very important. And finally, what strides have we made to recover from the pandemic? Perhaps a belated realization that our frontliners in the Ministry of Health are resilient and strong, and we cannot take them for granted. And frankly, they are the perhaps the only thing that held Malaysia together during the threat of COVID. And I think that's a very important realization and probably the biggest stride uh, that we needed to make to recognize really the strength of our frontliners and that we can no longer take them for granted. Over again to you, Tri. So the thing is, the pandemic did bring to light existing issues within our healthcare system, right? For instance, uh, underinvestment, disparities between the public and private sector. Could you help us understand the magnitude of these issues and the impact that it has um, on the country? Um, sure, we can try to understand the magnitude of the impact by throwing a bunch of numbers and statistics, you know, Lynn. Uh, however, Lynn um, and Sharmila, Maybe I'll take the example to compare Malaysia to Vietnam. Now, it's um, sometimes a um, fair or unfair comparison. I leave it to the, the listener to make a decision. So here are some numbers. Malaysia um, at the moment uh, um, is a country of about 35, 32 million people, including the non-resident or the undocumented migrants, maybe 35 million. Vietnam's a country of about 100 million people. So in the 1990s or so, Malaysia's life expectancy in the 1990s was higher than Vietnam. Now, what has Vietnam done? They have invested in their health system something like 8 to 9% year on year, especially since SARS in 2003. So SARS was a big wake-up call for Vietnam, and they, of course their economy grew and they became richer and wealthier. Vietnam also invested a lot of money and built and rebuilt their primary healthcare system, public healthcare system, and hospital care system to such an extent that in the 1990s, Malaysia, the average Malaysian lived longer than the average Vietnamese Today, actually around the year 2019, even about three years ago, the average Vietnamese started living longer than the average Malaysian. That story or that juxtaposition or just to put both these statistics together shows that the decades of underinvestment in Malaysia, also the disparity between the public and the private sector, to perhaps very, very stark light. Maybe I'll end with that uh, little comparison that uh, the average Vietnamese is now living longer than the average Malaysian, you know, good for them in Vietnam. I'm very happy for them and very proud for them and we should be very happy and proud of them as well. It just back into the question of uh, uh, how much longer can we use the current health system to operate the health system for the whole country of 32 million people in Malaysia and how we need to address the issues of underinvestment and disparity. So if we look at some of the on-ground issues that our healthcare system faces, uh, overcrowding in our emergency departments is said to be worse than pre-pandemic. What long-term impact does this have not just on patients who are in need of medical attention, but on the healthcare system as a whole? 
there are a few knock-on effects or consequences of uh, long waiting queues, right? So the first one is obviously there is an impact to the patients themselves that uh, if you wait too long to get medical care, uh, there is something called morbidity, which means that you're suffering as a result of the disease or mortality, that you die as a result of the disease. So that one's obvious. The less obvious um, impact of that is the impact on family members who are forced to care for sick patients because these patients are not able to get the care that they need whenever they need it. So that's a second impact that's less visible. Let's call it the caregiver problem, the family problem. The third impact of a long waiting lines, because the question is, what is the impact of long waiting lines of people not being able to access healthcare? So I'm going to proceed on a little bit to say that the third impact, also invisible, but possible to quantify, is the economic impact on the country. Meaning, X number of people who are unwell um, causes a situation called disability-adjusted life years. It means what that means is the total population of Malaysia, when you multiply that by uh, a year of their life that they have, they're not living in their best health, we can then quantify how much the economic impact would be in lost productivity, people don't show up at work, even if they show up at work, they're not able to concentrate. All that causes a, a productivity loss and an economic loss to Malaysia. So here are three. I'll give a fourth one, which is the impact of long waiting queues. Firstly, the impact on patients, that's understandable. Secondly, the impact on caregivers. Thirdly, the impact on the economy. The fourth one, also invisible. The impact of long waiting lines on trust in government and trust in public services. If people, not just in Malaysia, but the average citizen, is not able to access fundamental healthcare or education services at the public sector, then there will be a gradual and steady erosion of trust in the government that we cannot believe that the government will give us public services. Therefore, we don't want to pay our taxes, we go to the private sector, leading to a vicious circle of even more resources being pumped into the private sector and the hollowing out of the public sector. This is not just a Malaysian problem, this is a problem for every country around the world. Your question is, uh, what's the, shall we say, the consequences of uh, patients in need of medical attention but not getting it? I will say that there's impact to the patients, to the caregivers, to the economy, and also to trust in government and trust in public services. So one solution that the Minister of Health has uh, has made is that the operation hours at public health clinics be extended to uh, handle this issue of overcrowding in emergency departments. The idea hasn't been well received by government doctors. They've pointed out that their staff are already overworked. Um, what do you think was the rationale behind this suggestion? Shamila, thank you. Um, well, it, it's probably true that uh, um, your, your statement that it was not received well by government doctors, uh, it wasn't received well by one group of government doctors, which are the doctors in primary care. It was probably well received by the doctors who are working in hospitals because they can see this as an opportunity to, um, rightly or wrongly, correctly or not, uh, give the responsibility for patient care to their counterparts and colleagues in primary care, meaning hospital doctors will be happy, clinic doctors will be less happy with the extension of uh, the, the hours of a clinic, uh, um, say, public health clinics, which then leads me to the second point, that the Ministry of Health is really very large, and you can subdivide the Ministry of Health of 270,000 people in Malaysia into hospital care, public health services, and um, primary health care services, and so on and so forth. And, and yet, the Ministry of Health is governing the entire health system. And we're looking at another 450,000 people or so in the public, in the private side, general practice clinics, hospital staff, or people who work in laboratories, or pharmaceutical companies, and so on. All that is to say that the Ministry of Health, when looking at the solution to the problem, cannot only look at one department in the Ministry of Health, it must also look at the entire Ministry of Health. Not only that, 
must also look at the entire health system of Malaysia because there are many resources outside of the Ministry of Health as well. Now, your question, Shamila, sorry, it was a small digression. Your question is, what's the rationale behind the suggestion for the minister? So the theoretical rationale is as follows. Um, there about 60 to 80%, the number is around 70%, but let, let me give a range of 60 to 80% of cases that go to emergency departments are, let me call them, uh, the cold cases. Uh, that's a the um, informal term, the technical term will be green cases or low criticality cases, as in they don't need emergency care. Let's call it the coughs, colds, headaches, and so on, which are usually better managed at a, a primary clinic level, meaning hospital emergency departments are for accident victims, heart attacks, strokes, and not if you just have a headache or running nose for a day. COVID accepting, of course, uh, because uh, during COVID, uh, we, we changed the emergency department to cater for COVID. So the rationale to shift the work to from hospital uh, from emergency rooms to uh, health clinics is because 60 to 80% of the cases in emergency departments are not critical emergency cases, therefore should be better managed at public health clinics. However, the problem with public health clinics is that they're already managing non-communicable diseases like diabetes, hypertension, and so on. And to uh, take on the additional load coming from um, emergency departments that have to extend the operating hours, and that's the theoretical rationale for that. So considering then that there is a balance to be struck here, right, in wanting to ensure that patients can be seen in a timely fashion, that there is an overcrowding, but at the same time, you're not overworking already overworked people. Uh, what kinds of long-term solutions uh, could the ministry be looking at to address these issues? Do, to, if the problem is overcrowding, we can then divide the problem. Sorry, uh, um, I have to put on a bit of a health systems hat over here and, and then try to um, break down the problem a little bit, okay? So to overcrowd, uh, let's say that there are three broad categories of overcrowding. And each of these three categories of overcrowding have got multiple reasons for why they're overcrowding. And therefore, with multiple reasons for three types of overcrowding, we'll have to address all of them. I won't give the laundry list of the reasons for overcrowding in all three categories. Here are the three categories. The first category is overcrowding at the emergency department level. The second category of overcrowding is overcrowding at the hospital bed ward level, meaning uh, the, the wards are congested, that we can't get enough beds. Uh, and, and, and all these are interlinked, of course, but they're quite distinct. The third overcrowding is overcrowding at the clinic level to see specialists. So overcrowding at emergency departments, overcrowding at hospital wards, and overcrowding to see a specialist. Or rather long waiting line, sometimes two months uh, to get an MRI or to see a specialist. Now, each of these three um, subcategories of overcrowding have got their own reasons for it. Uh, I'll just take one example, emergency room, because we're talking about this, right? So one reason is 70% are non-critical cases. So yes, we may wish to consider one partial solution, uh, but it's not a magic solution. By extending operating hours in uh, public health, uh, in uh, government clinics, it's not going to magically reduce the problem or, or just take the problem away because you have to educate patients. And then at some point, you have to close the government clinic at 11 p.m. What if the patient decides, you know what, I'm just going to come at 2 in the morning. I ran an emergency department at 2 in the morning and lots of headaches come at 2 in the morning. The main reason being I can't sleep. Then therefore, patient education becomes important. Thirdly, you have to introduce financial incentives and disincentives. For example, it costs one ringgit. And actually, if you declare to the counter hustle that you are poor without really showing documentation, it becomes zero ringgit for you to get attention by a doctor. So these are three reasons, right, uh, for, for why uh, there's overcrowding at the emergency department level. So just by um, extending the clinic operating hours at a government clinic without addressing behavior of patients, 
education of patients, health literacy of patients, even financial incentives and disincentives, it would not be easy for us to just magically make the problem disappear. Now, of course, we can go into the rabbit hole of overcrowding at the ward level, or overcrowding at the specialist care, uh, clinic level, uh, waiting lines to see a specialist or MRI. But perhaps in favour of time, uh, Shamila, I'll turn the floor back to you. I wanted to, uh, we've got a couple of minutes left and I wanted to take a listener point actually that came in via WhatsApp. So from Shah, who says, we seriously need to formulate a common platform or app to manage health issues. Any Malaysian hospital, public or private, should be able to access a patient's medical record through some common methodology. It will help hospitals minimise trial and error in diagnosis. This has been in planning for donkey's years. Um, How would you respond to that? I'll respond to that in a few ways. Firstly, by thanking Shah's Secondly, by uh, saying that, Shah, this is a grand idea and that we should all love it uh, and we should all support it in theory. Thirdly, it's very difficult to implement in practice and uh, almost no countries in the world have had success in a portable lifetime electronic health records, app-based, browser-based, cloud-based uh, um, or uh, clinic information system-based. We can leave all that tech questions aside. However, not even small countries uh, that are quite centralised, shall we say, like Singapore or Hong Kong, have been able to had success by the entire population being on one platform. So I will say that uh, this is very challenging. Shah, the reason, and my uh, uh, fans who are listeners, the reason why it's challenging is not technology. We've got the blockchain, uh, um, the cloud solutions, uh, the uh, data analytics solutions, data lake privacy protections, and all that. We have all the technology solutions. That's 5% of the problem. The 95% of the problem is politics. As in, who's going to own the data? Uh, will the government take a lead and so on? The economics, who is going to pay for that particular service, including the rental of the cloud server base and so on and so forth. And then finally, um, behavior of prescribers. In other words, doctors. In other words, the ego of doctors, if I can, uh, look, I'm a doctor myself, so I'm, I, perhaps I can say this. The ego of doctors and I guess the self-interest of not only doctors, but clinics and hospital groups, right, in any country, not just in Malaysia, is preventing the widespread adoption of a single platform App, browser-based, or web-based, doesn't matter to me, for, or doesn't should not matter to us for now. Uh, but it's the politics, the economics, and the uh, prescriber behavior, and the clinician behavior, and the hospital behavior that are preventing the widespread adoption of electronic health records at the moment. We're speaking today with Dr. Koswi King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition, um, and discussing the state of affairs that we find ourselves in with the Ministry of Health. Um, we'd like to hear from you as well. What should the MOH focus on this year? And if you could change one thing about our healthcare to make it better, what would it be? You can call us, send us a voice note or WhatsApp, as well as tweet us at BFM Radio. Become fabulous millionaires. BFM 89.9. It is 6.38 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sharmila and we're talking today about 2023 resolutions that we would like to see the Ministry of Health adopt and we've been asking you uh, exactly that. What do you think the MOH should focus on this year? And also, if you could change one thing about our healthcare that you think would make it better, what would that one thing be? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp 018 Double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We're continuing our conversation now uh, with Dr. Koswi King. And we're going to focus on this in more detail later with the MMA. But we wanted to ask you as well. Um, another issue that remains at the forefront here is overworked and underpaid doctors within the government sector. It informed uh, many parts, many questions that we asked you earlier as well. Um, why are we still seeing this happen? What, what blocks are there in resolving this? There are... Um 
it, it's a very complex question to answer, Trillian. And, and uh, maybe I'll break it down into two parts, right? The first one is doctors overworked. Secondly, doctors underpaid. Why are doctors overworked? And let me use doctors as a um, placeholder for nurses are overworked, pharmacists are overworked, health inspectors are overworked, uh, and so on. So it's not just a doctor problem. However, j- just as a placeholder, let me say doctors and their colleagues are overworked. And then we'll talk about why underpaid. They're overworked because uh, of things that um, are broadly outside of their control. Firstly, the Malaysian population is older, bigger, sicker. Older because uh, the average age is uh, getting older, um, we're aging as a society. Malaysians are getting sicker, as in because you grow older, you generally tend to become sicker, especially with uh, non-communicable diseases that come uh, almost all at the same time. Thirdly, our population is bigger. So from about 32 million today, but maybe at the time of independence in 1957, only about 10 million people. So we can say that uh, doctors are getting overworked because um, the population of Malaysia is older, sicker, and bigger. Secondly, there are more complex diseases, but we know this for a fact, uh, so let me not give that particular speech. The third reason why, um, one reason why doctors could be overworked um, is that uh, the system is not distributing human resources appropriately. Here's what I mean. Malaysia may have 77,000 doctors, uh, and approximately uh, 70% of these doctors are working in the government sector, and another 30% as well are working in the private sector. This is a plus-minus uh, um, division. But even within the 70-30 split, they, we can also split it according to clinic and hospital. We can then split it according to peninsula, Sabah, and Strava. So, and then we can further subsplit it into different specializations. For example, emergency department may be very, very busy, but other departments may be less busy. So, among, of the 77,000 doctors that we have in Malaysia, how are we distributing those doctors in a way that uh, can redistribute the workload appropriately so that um, we don't uh, ask uh, specific departments or specific hospitals or specific states to bear the brunt of being overworked? All this is to say that uh, maldistribution of human resources uh, is almost always a problem in every country. So it's not just a Malaysia problem. We don't really have the, the publicly available data for us to see whether or not uh, the, the problem of overworked, uh, whether or not it's a problem pervasive across the system or in most parts of the system or in some parts of the system. That's on the overworked side. Why do we still get uh, health professionals who are underpaid? And, and, and frankly, this is uh, also structural, um, but here there's an element of uh, justice attached to it. Um, let, let's examine the structural reasons first. Malaysia has a lower wage economy. So our wage uh, could be, we could be trapped in a middle income um, economy without moving ourselves to high income. I'll let the economists explain more a little bit about this. But if our entire economy is not able to um, become high income, then health professionals are, cannot really you know, be paid like six times more than the average person, for example. Uh, and six is just a number. Uh, I'm just inventing it uh, to prove the point. The point being that Malaysia as a whole, structurally, we're low to middle wages. We haven't yet made the transition to high income and we have to get out of that trap. How to get out of that trap? An economist who's a better worse uh, than me will be able to answer that question. The second reason um, about uh, this is that in most other countries, the um, salary scheme for health professionals like doctors, nurses, and so on, are determined by the entity that runs the department. In other words, um, the UK NHS or the National Health Service in the United Kingdom determines their own salary scheme, determines how many people that they need and how to hire, fire, manage, promote, and so on. Um, And this happens uh, in the majority of the high-income countries, if not all the high-income countries around the world as well. In other words, the HR management of the Ministry of Health is run at the Ministry of Health. Not in Malaysia, though. 
where the HR management for the Ministry of Health is run out of the Jabatan Perkhidmatan Awam of the Public Services Department. Now, this is a relic uh, from the British administration, the, the civil and um, during colonial times, when there was a public service division in many um, former, um, former British colonies or Commonwealth countries, like there is a similar PSD, for example, in countries like Pakistan and India. The, the, anyway, regardless of the reasons how we got here, we are here. And we are here in a situation where the public service division is determining um, how the hiring, firing, salary scheme, promotion exercises and so on for the Ministry of Health should take place. Obviously, um, there is a lot of talk about a health services commission in the hopes that the health services commission, similar to the police commission or the human rights commission and so on, might be able to determine the salary scheme, hiring practices, firing practices, promoting practices for the Ministry of Health, which would then align the incentives of the people inside the Ministry of Health to pay doctors and health professionals more. So uh, we've deconstructed uh, in just the last two minutes or so, uh, why are doctors and their colleagues overworked and why are doctors and their colleagues underpaid? You touched on this actually at the very beginning of the show when you talked about hidden crises. There has been an increasing push for the government to invest in uh, invest more in mental health. What would you like to see being done here? Mental health together with aging are the two problems that are already here for us to solve. And yet our entire health system is not equipped to solve mental health and aging. Let's talk about mental health. What are the three things uh, that I think are, are necessary from a system level for mental health? Number one, we need more professionals, meaning more human capital. Number two, we need more labor protections. And number three, we need more and better protections for the social determinants of health. Let, let's unpack them uh, one by one, Shamila. More human capital equals to more psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, counselors, and so on. Obviously, there is no end to the number of psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists that you can train because there is almost an, an endless demand for mental health care services, right? So one whole speech about how we need more trained professionals. The second one is more labor protections or employment protections because there's, there, are, there are only so many psychologists you can train. Frankly, you can train one psychologist for one person, right? And half of Malaysia is psychologists, uh, for example. And that still wouldn't solve the problem because it's an endless demand, a potential endless demand for healthcare, which is why the second component and the third components are important, labor and employment protections for mental health. Meaning, are we providing, we're, we're good at providing insurance for cancer, diabetes, accidents, and occupational hazards, wonderful. Now, let's give insurance protection for mental health. Then, uh, we are good at giving um, sick days uh, for people who are, um, for example, again, having cancer or surgeries. Now, we should get better at giving sick days for people who are uh, having mental health issues. Now, obviously, we need to provide some ways to uh, control against abuse, right? Because we don't want fraud and abuse. We don't want people to claim that they've got uh, um, a mental health issue and use that as an excuse to get out of work. So, yes, we should control that appropriately. However, it should be and can be a little bit more liberal. Those are two examples of labor and employment protections, insurance, better insurance for mental health, and better, shall we say, workplace rights and employment rights for mental health. Finally, you can train more psychologists. Secondly, you can provide more employment protections. You will still have mental health issues if you're not addressing the social determinants of health, of mental health. For example, are we living in a society that promotes health and well-being? Or are we living in a society that encourages people to hustle hard, work 80 hours a week? You must have a side job or a side gig, otherwise you'll be considered inferior or inadequate. But these kind of things are, are the uh, signaling components of mental health. There are other social uh, determinants as well. 
you know, one way to uh, perhaps uh, improve the mental health of all Malaysians, perhaps uh, is a minimum wage so that you don't get anxious because you can't put food on the table so that you can feel better that you're providing for your children and therefore don't get depression. So maybe minimum wage, for example, and all other social interventions are necessary for mental health. You can train a million psychologists, but if you if people are in poverty uh, and you're only medicalizing the, uh, their, their problem, uh, their, their anxiety, their depression, uh, by giving them medicines, even though they're in poverty and you can fix poverty instead of right. giving them medicines, you can train a million psychologists and you will still not be able to get good mental health. So what do I want uh, a bit more for the system? More therapists and professionals for sure. More employment protection, secondly. And thirdly, more emphasis and protections for the social determinants of mental health, things like poverty and living arrangements and so on. So I think um, at this point, we do have to talk about the white paper. This is a project that the ministry has said they're working on, uh, something that the former health minister had also been pushing for. Uh, can you tell us about how this white paper would benefit our healthcare system? Um, as a, thank you, Trillian. Uh, as a disclosure, I'm uh, one of the 13 members of the Advisory Council for the White Paper. And firstly, I want to record that uh, we're all very thankful. The Advisory Council is very thankful to the Ministry of Health, as well as the uh, former minister, current Ministry of Health, and as well as the Secretariat uh, for really driving the health white paper. That we need reforms uh, is um, not necessary for discussion. We know that we need reforms. I'll set that aside. And your question is, um, what does the health paper entail? The health paper is a high-level statement of intent. What does the statement of intent mean? It means that we'll sketch out, we would like to sketch out and propose to the Ministry of Health, and the Ministry of Health um, has actually really done a lot of the work in creating the health white paper, so really kudos to the ministry themselves and the secretary inside the ministry to, to, to state where we want to go. And these are the uh, objectives, uh, the steady state that we want to aim for, and the intention for the reforms. So that's a high-level statement of intent. It does have some operational implementation detail. Um, it cannot be fleshed out because we need more uh, consultations, uh, although a lot of consultations have been had for the health white paper. More needs to be had um, for the, uh, shall we say, the implementation process of it. So um, I, I end uh, the answer to this question by giving um, four pillars of healthcare and the next steps. The four pillars of health white reform white paper are, are as follows, and this is a matter of public record. Firstly, to transform healthcare service delivery, for example, prioritize primary care and optimize hospital care. Secondly, is to advance promotive and preventive services, meaning not only sick care when you have a disease, but to prevent the disease in the first place. Thirdly, ensuring sustainable and equitable. Sustainable meaning we can go a long time. Equitable meaning is fair healthcare financing. And fourthly, strengthening the foundations and the governance of the health system. For example, what is the right role of the Ministry of Health and how does it govern itself? These are four main pillars of the uh, Health White Paper. And it was announced uh, um, just uh, two days ago by the Minister, uh, YB Dr. Zaleha Mustafa, that she hopes to table the Health White Paper in Parliament in the middle of 2023. So that's the history of the White Paper, the contents of the White Paper, and the next step, which is, uh, if all goes well, a tabling in Parliament by the Health Minister, Dr. Zaleha, in the middle of 2023. We have a message from a listener. This is from Sue Eng. Um, and uh, they're asking, may I ask Dr. Cole if Vietnam's conscious investment in health is a socialist thrust as opposed to a neoliberal agenda? And that's one reason for its success. Uh, and yet, you also mentioned that the overburdened and overworked system in Malaysia is because public health fees are practically zero. And some people, despite hardly being poor, take advantage of it. So there needs to be some sort of literacy promotion. 
Is it basically the Marxist principle from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs? Well, um, a Thursday evening is always a great time to talk about Marx, right? Um, <laughs> however, let, let's talk a bit about uh, um, Vietnam's philosophy. I don't know, it's a short answer. Is, is Vietnam socialist, neo-Marxist? Uh, are they Maoist? Are they, uh, are they neoliberal in, in their political philosophy and the political economy of health? Now, uh, reasonable minds can differ about uh, the ideology of the Vietnamese government. But let me set that aside and introduce pragmatism which is something that I think uh, we should uh, um, talk uh, uh, a lot more about, that maybe we don't have to be ideological, as in your left, your right, your centre, doesn't matter. What's pragmatic is important. And what's pragmatic is uh, SARS woke Vietnam up uh, the same way it woke Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, China, South Korea. And, and I've written about this, about how these countries had a wake-up call from SARS. And from an ideological or non-ideological perspective, and we can agree to disagree, um, they made pragmatic decisions to invest more in healthcare. So in Vietnam's case, and in the case of uh, East Asia, that was really shaken by SARS in 2003, um, I would like to say that it's more pragmatic than ideological. That the Vietnamese, uh, um, perhaps uh, uh, after all, uh, among all the Southeast Asian countries, are very pragmatic um, on the basis of no evidence. So I would say they're the most pragmatic uh, in Southeast Asia. So I'll begin there. The bit about uh, Malaysia's uh, um, uh, and that Marxist uh, um, or Marxian maybe, uh, um, analysis of Malaysia's healthcare system and paying one ringgit. Now, one ringgit uh, to access uh, government clinics in Malaysia and five ringgit to access a specialist care in Malaysia dates back from 1982, um, around the time when I was born. Now, in 1982, obviously, since then, uh, uh, the, since, uh, in 1982, the cost of living was very low. And since then, obviously, inflation is X percentage uh, because of living Y percentage uh, since 1982. So it makes sense for us to increase the number one ringgit and five ringgit to something else. What is that something else? Uh, and actuaries will be able to calculate that for us. Now, regardless of the number, let's talk about the principle of shared responsibility for health. And this is an important principle. And my personal opinion on this matter is that today in Malaysia, right now, there is not enough shared responsibility for health. And indeed, the average citizen in Malaysia believes that the responsibility for healthcare is perhaps 100% on the side of the government. And this is dangerous, unsafe for the citizen and also for the government, unsustainable fiscally and uh, from a financial perspective, needless to say. And what I mean to say about shared responsibility is not to say that the government is... Uh, uh, 50 and the individual citizen is 50%. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I, and we will never be able to arrive at the right number. However, we can perhaps agree that there is too much reliance on the government now and not enough reliance on the on the individual, not just for paying for health, but taking care of your own health. Like, are we exercising? Are we eating well? Are we seeing a doctor for preventive screening? And all that is a not only a factor of health literacy, but also a factor of uh, uh, how much are we going to pay for healthcare? All that goes back to the principle of shared responsibility for health, which is something that is universally agreed upon as a personal opinion in Malaysia. There is not yet enough shared responsibility for health. We have, uh, I think, just really a couple of minutes left with you at uh, at this time. But this seems like the appropriate question to end on, given we're talking about money. Uh, the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy has also outlined the need for the government to focus on healthcare financing reforms, saying that our current approach is inadequate and unsustainable. So in closing, what would you like to see here? Mm, let me deepen the analysis from Galen uh, and say that uh, what are the gaps in financing? Three gaps. Not enough, not diverse enough, and not enough personal responsibility. We'll unpack that very briefly uh, and uh, very happy to post a call. Um, 
the not enough part is easy for us to understand. We're investing 2.5% of our GDP on public health care. We should probably get a number up to around 4 5% or so. Not that there's a WHO requirement, but because uh, that's roughly the benchmark uh, for countries at our peer uh, level in Malaysia. So there's not enough funding for healthcare. Secondly, it's not diverse enough because just, just by saying that we're going to increase our uh, funding for healthcare um, 5%, right? It implies that we're going to fund through taxation. Now, there are four main ways that you can tax, uh, sorry, fund for healthcare. One, taxation. Number two, uh, out of pocket. Number three, insurance. Number four, social health insurance or contributory insurance. Now, these are four broad ways uh, that we can fund for healthcare. What is the right um, percentage and ratio? Uh, open to interpretation. Malaysia's ratio at the moment is 50 40 10. 50 40 10, well, on the face of it, uh, skips out one important component. So it should be ABCD instead of ABC. And 50-40-10 seems like it's very reliant on, on uh, tax funding. Now, of course, we can say that we're going to increase tax funding and every uh, politician will give that particular speech. And if we're going to increase tax funding for healthcare, we will then have to increase taxes. And nobody uh, likes increasing of taxes. Therefore, we need to diversify our healthcare uh, sources of healthcare funds, not just increase healthcare funds. Finally, is that little speech about the personal responsibility for health, uh, which uh, mirrors uh, what I said earlier. So, um, so in favor of time, I'll just say that uh, we need to have a better balance for personal responsibility for health and not just provide all the moral and financial responsibility for healthcare only and solely and completely to the government. So this is a layperson description of the problems in financing. Not enough, not diverse enough, and not enough personal responsibility. Dr. Kaur, thank you so much for speaking with us today. That was Dr. Koswi King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition, uh, taking us through some of the major issues um, that our Ministry of Health is looking to resolve, I think, at this point in time. We are going to return later on to talk about the issue of uh, healthcare workers and pay and caring for them. In the meantime, though, we are asking you, what would you like to see the MOH focus on this year? And if you could change one thing about our healthcare system, what would it be? Those numbers, you can call us double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note to 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Best Flipping Moments, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 7.07. You're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sharmila. And before we get to our next guest, um, we have been asking you, what do you want the Ministry of Health to focus on? And also, if you could change one thing, one single thing about our system right now our, or our health care in the country, what would that one thing be? What do you think would improve it? Uh, you can call double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. So um, there are some very detailed messages that have come in and a lot to do with uh, actually our next interview. So let's start with Anonymous um, who says, we should be moving away from more unnecessary healthcare and prioritise accordingly, but it takes a brave politician or leader to push for less screening and instead work on tackling large-scale contributors to poor health uh, like the social determinants, especially poverty and education. I wish our healthcare system realised that it can't be all things to all people and everyone has to be more accountable to take care of their own health to reduce the dependency as much as possible. Basically, health systems should realise that equitability and sustainability should look to solutions that address triple bottom line components of people, planet, profit. Otherwise, we're actually part of the problem. Also, clinics, uh, clinic kesihatan and hospitals aren't interchangeable. It's not the same, but people always think so somehow. In clinic kesihatan, there is no access to multidisciplinary 
multidisciplinary specialists, their limited resources, um, essential things such as labs, x-ray, meds, um, and clinics provide multiple other community programs that hospitals aren't even aware of. We just need people to come to the right place for the right reason. And if I could change one thing, I would remove the layers of bureaucracy, make poor performing middle management officers in the many non-clinical positions, get down to the ground so they can face the lived realities of their staff and make the changes required. Transparency, empathy, intentional integrity, and intentional integrity, not just kami sedia membantu. If MOH is in fact not bersedia to membantu with so many basic essentials lacking. Oh, so many good points raised there. Uh, just to add to that last point about getting down to the ground, Dennis is also saying if there's one thing to change in the current ministry, get down to the floor from the current ivory tower management. A lot can be experienced firsthand when you're on the ground. And then this call to um, actually go out and see what the situation is on the ground is something that we've been hearing a lot. I also wanted to um, point out that the the anonymous listener's point about taking a more comprehensive look to health um, is also in line with something our guest earlier talked about, Dr. Koswi King, when he talked about mental health and he talked about the larger system within which we live in. Um, Do we live in a society that encourages uh, taking care of yourself and well-being or do we live in a society that pushes you and pushes you without care for the long-term ramifications of that? Well, actually, that was going to be my one thing. So if if I were to pick one thing, it would have been uh, more health supportive programs, not not even just preventative programs or not support programs once something bad has happened, um, but programs that actually um, help support people who want to live a healthier life but aren't sure where to start or who need different types of support. I think knowing that you could walk into, I mean, admittedly now they're overstretched and everyone's overworked, so maybe now's not the best time, um, but knowing that you could walk into a space and say, hi, um, I know that they're already smoking cessation programs. So Things like that, uh, that you can walk into a space and say, hi, I want to um, I want to get healthier. Here are my problems. This is what I want resolved. Um, knowing that there are avenues for that, I think would be really helpful. Maybe those exist. And if that's the case, then just more promotion would be great. We also have um, another anonymous listener who says, I'm a healthcare worker, not a doctor. There's so much I want to say, but I'll stick to a few things. Uh, I'll stick to a few things. The funding for healthcare, for, the funding for healthcare needs a revamp. National healthcare insurance should be the way forward. Number two, severe lack of manpower versus the demands, which has led to issues such as poor quality of care, long waiting time, and healthcare staff burnout. Systemic reforms on administration, for instance, abolish time-based promotions, the random placement of staff, i.e. throwing people to different states, adding of multiple portfolios that stretch staff out too thin, leading to burnout. And finally, much more effort is needed to raise public awareness. This will help healthcare industry to be better utilized. For instance, prevention before disease happens, public would understand the emergency department is not for simple cases, not seeing a BOMO or spiritual healer until things become too late to treat. I mean, again, I think a lot of great points um, and it's valuable. It's always valuable to hear directly from healthcare workers. I think actually uh, the literacy on the side of the the layperson, the average Malaysian of what to do, where to go, how to take care of ourselves uh, is probably something that does need to be improved. Now, speaking of um, talking to people who are actually working and on the ground and in these positions, um, I believe that we have got a doctor on the line with us. We've got Amanda. Amanda, Good evening. What are your thoughts? Hi, 
My name is Dr. Amanda Ali. Um, I am a contract doctor working for the Ministry of Health in Klinik Kesihatan. Um, I just hope that, you know, in the light of this government change, which is like amazing, okay, I'm ecstatic for the new government. I really do hope that, you know, you guys could take more doctors in uh, for permanent position and not just doctors, you know, nurses, the whole healthcare sector per se, because we are screaming <laughs> at Klinik Kesihatan at a hospital level. You know, we need more people in the system, really. You know, it's it's me and my friends. If if say you know there are ten of us, ten contract doctors in the clinic, you can you can simply say that eight of them, eight of us have left, and you know it's just probably me and my friend, you know, just hanging on a thread. So um, we we really do hope to see um, changes with regards to that. Thank you so much for airing me out. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Amanda. Um, that was again. I, I think. Knowing exactly how many people are there, how many people have left, what exactly is needed. I mean, the hanging by a thread thing, um, hearing that is actually kind of, I don't know, uh, it, it's, it's upsetting. It's upsetting because it's an important job. It's an important position and there should be support. I think I said it on one of our shows earlier this week that it always makes me so sad and concerned that we have healthcare workers who have to say that they're hanging by on a thread because that's not the condition we want our healthcare workers to be in. We don't want anyone to be that way, but it's even more important when we're talking about people who are directly responsible for other people's well-being. Uh, we also have a voice note that has come in and I think uh, to close off, we've got this from Nabil. I think what would be best considering that the uh Ministry of Health is severely underfunded is to introduce uh, fast food tax to all consumers that are eating fast food, uh, sugary drinks that are very rampant and blossoming in the market and we all know that it is a ticking bomb that somewhere in the future 10 or 20 years from now a lot of people are going to get sick because of that. So I think it would be prudent to have those uh, kind of tax so that we can widen the tax base that can be channeled directly to the ministry. Ooh, okay. So um, I think I think a good... <laughs> what am I trying to say here? I think that there is a good point, uh, absolutely. I don't know that I necessarily agree with a higher tax being placed. I think we, we've spoken about this recently and the discussion of widening the tax base in that in that way being quite tricky. I think one of your guests, Sharmila, spoke about this last week. Um, the person is escaping me, but the the reason for it was given in that show as well. Yeah, I, it's tricky, isn't it? Because this notion of, um, what's the word, preemptively punishing someone, um, even though it might be viewed as, as a, a wider good, is is always complicated. And, and I think there are other ways in which we could do this that doesn't involve making people feel like they are uh, somehow being unfairly victimised. So keep those thoughts coming. Uh, you can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. What do you want the Ministry of Health to focus on? And if you could change one thing about healthcare in Malaysia, one thing to make it better. Tell us what that would be. Uh, in the meantime, since so many messages have been focusing on this and also because uh, it's been in the news nonstop, uh, we wanted to talk about this issue of treatment, uh, payment, all the rest of it, hours of healthcare workers. Uh, joining us on the line now to do that 
is Dr. Muruga Raj Rajaturai, President of the Malaysian Medical Association. Dr. Muruga, welcome to the show. Hello, good evening. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, So you've been quite vocal about the issue of public healthcare workers being underpaid and overworked. Can you tell us more about what these doctors have been experiencing? What are the working conditions like? Okay, let me start like this. I mean, everyone who goes to work must be happy. But then if the system is, you know, uh, overcrowded and then they are not enough manpower, they are overworked and they are underpaid, how will you feel? You will not feel happy going to work itself. So, you know, the, the, even Tansi, I think uh, Tansi, Dr. No Hisham had mentioned that, you know, we are underfunded, understaffed, underpaid, overworked, overstretched and overcrowded. So these things should have been corrected. You know, they should have uh, done the manpower planning much, much uh, earlier. We don't have to wait until so many of our doctors are giving up. You know, they're giving up the career because they can't take the stress at work. Going to hospital and working itself is a stress. See, for, for example, you give a houseman, he's told to come to work at 7 to save 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. But there's someone in the system, either a medical officer or a specialist or a consultant, making them come in at 5 a.m. and going back at 10 or 11 p.m. at night. Some of them, not all consultants do that, some of them. So how can someone work 15, 16 hours and, uh, and, and uh, perform? Definitely is going to uh, reduce their performance. You know, and they can they they can make if you force them to do work like this, they can make mistakes as well because of fatigue. So uh, actually, MMA has been uh, always bringing this up to the Ministry of Health, and this not uh, with I mean many ministers we have brought this up to many many ministers, and uh, you know uh, star, I mean the top management. So we're still going to push for this. So you've emphasised yeah. the need for healthcare workers to have a healthy work-life balance. What happens when severe burnout of doctors is not addressed properly? What is the impact on not just the doctors, but the healthcare, healthcare system as a whole? Yeah, I mean, see, when there's a burnout, when, the, when these people are overworked, of course, there's burnout. One, they are going to give up and leave the system. So again, then you're going to cause more shortage of manpower in the system. Two, they will stay in the system, fatigue can make them make mistakes. And any mistake in a, in the healthcare is a mistake. Any mistake is a mistake. We don't have to count the mistake. I mean, you see, compared to a pilot, he's only allowed to work certain hours. Why? Because they say, oh, he can make a mistake. But here again, why my why must my houseman's work 15, 16 hours? Why we are not uh, putting a stop to that? It has been going on for years. And it's been brought up to the attention of all the, to the like I say, various... Uh, I mean, the ministers who in, in the system, it can also affect their health. I mean, I think maybe we have to do a study and get some data from the uh, psychiatrists in all the public hospitals to see how many housemans now are coming to see them. You know, they're going into depression, they're going into anxiety. All this is because of burnout. So I'm glad you raised mental health and well-being. Um, what policies do you want to see being pushed forward then to assist uh, doctors who are having mental health challenges or experiencing burnout? Yeah, I mean, like what I mentioned just now, simple, actually, everyone must be happy working. You know, I mean, they all became doctors because they wanted to be doctors. So they are willing to work, but just make that place comfortable for them. Let them follow their timing. I mean, if it's 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., then it should be 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. When it comes to 5 p.m., they must allow the houseman or the junior doctor to pass over to the next shift and leave. 
they should not allow them to work more than 10 hours. Maximum 10 hours, that also is WHO's uh, recommendation. You see, now we have a shift system in the in the hospital, say 7 to 5, and then another shift in f- after 5. But so, why are you not allowing the houseman to pass away at 5 o'clock? Of course, the houseman also must do their job efficiently and uh, quickly and pass over the thing properly at 5 and leave. So, simple things like that will actually... Uh, uh, reduce the fatigue in uh, doctors, housemen, junior doctors, and you know they'll be going to work happily. And when they're happy, they can get trained better as well. And uh, bullying, I mean, they're, they're not all consultants or specialists are bullying. Some of the, bu- the bullies are actually senior housemen, uh, I mean, uh, among themselves or MOs itself and uh, medical officers. So all the bullying also must stop. Working now, in the these- hospital is very stressful. So just to pick up on that, these multiple problems that you've pointed out, one of the impacts of that is that there's this issue of a brain drain, right? Uh, With various doctors leaving the sector to look for better opportunities, either in private institutions or uh, even overseas. How have you seen this impact our public healthcare system? Okay, so when there's a brain drain, like you said, it can be internal, it can be external, it can be to the private sector in Malaysia itself, or it can leave to go to Singapore, Australia or somewhere overseas. Why the brain drain, I think everybody knows, is because of the deep frustration in the system. There's no transparency in the system. There's no, uh, I mean, if you're getting promotion, you, you don't know why you're getting a promotion of those who didn't get, don't know why, because there's no proper criteria and transparency in promotion or getting your permanent post, and know, they're underpaid and all that. So when they, are, when they leave the system and go private or overseas, what's happening to our system? Manpower reduce again. It becomes a chain reaction again, because then after that, if a specialist leaves, now there's another specialist has to, who's staying back in the system has to do two people's job for one person's salary. So when they leave, then there's a brain drain. Even going to private within Malaysia, it's going to uh, be a problem for the uh, doctors who remain in the system. And definitely healthcare delivery will be also uh, affected. So, the Ministry of Health has opened up 4,914 permanent posts for medical officers this year. Uh, If we do look, though, at the amount of contract doctors within the field at the moment, how significant is this number? I think it's a a good start. It's a definitely good start because uh, we we, uh, looked at about 18,000 member uh, floating contract doctors in the system. So if they're opening up uh, 4,263, I think, for the for the medical doctors, it's a good start. Last year, we had about 3,000 plus. And when we met uh, the health minister also, uh, she had mentioned that she will try to give us uh, more this year. And true enough, she managed to give, uh, I think, a total of 4,900 for healthcare workers, but for us, about 4,260. But for those who didn't, who don't get, for those who don't get and uh, remain as contract doctors, I hope the Ministry of Health can give them a clearer career pathway for them. We must know how we are going to let them have their uh, uh, their careers going to be, whether how they're going to allow them to specialize. Because if we don't do this, in time to come, maybe in 10 years, we are going to be short of specialists. Mm. I wish they, I, I wish the Ministry could give us more. But for now, I think it's a good start that the Minister of Health, the new Minister of Health, as soon as she took over, she promised us that she would give us more than last year, and she did it. What else, then, would you like to see being done by the Health Ministry to ensure that the rights of our public service doctors are not being overlooked? Okay, they need to do manpower planning, you know. 
they have to do manpower planning first. We have to know the manpower versus the beds in the, in that facility, uh, you know, how many patients admitted in the facility. So all this uh, should be known. And then only we can plan the manpower. And also, uh, you know, nowadays, centralized manpower data for planning with this digitalized uh, age is quite, uh, I think, should be done. First thing is the manpower planning. Second thing, I think Ministry of Health and JPA, they have given the timing. Okay, this is your time, houseman. You only work this time. And medical officer, you only get, you must work this time. So I think they must be strict to, to, the, to make sure that the doctors or the senior doctors only allow them to work this time uh, or during for that time that they're given. For example, 7 to 5, then it should be only 7 to 5. No one can ask them to come in early or no one can ask them to go back late because it is not that you're leaving the patient and going. You're going to pass over to the next shift and go. So I don't see why they are not allowed to leave. This is also, for me, for me personally, it's also a kind of bullying when you ask them to come and work 15, 16 hours a day when there's, there is another doctor there to, for them to pass over the shift, uh, shift and go. So the junior doctors or senior doctors or specialists or what, no, whoever also, they should not be made to work more than 10 hours. Dr. Muruga, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. That was Dr. Muruga Raj Rajadurai, President of the Malaysian Medical Association, uh, speaking about the, the plight that's really facing many of our healthcare workers and doctors. Um, we've talked about this a lot, permanent positions, pay long hours. Uh, we've also been asking you, what would you change about our healthcare in Malaysia to make it better? And... Um, there are still so many messages. So Anil actually says something that echoes what uh, Dr. Muruga said. Bullying. Bullying has to stop. My friend's wife, who completed her studies and practiced, started practicing at a certain government hospital, had to leave because of bullying. I've also heard so many of my friends and acquaintances who work within the healthcare system talk about bullying. And in fact, how this idea of bullying is almost systemic. It gets passed on from generation to generation of uh, new healthcare workers. And I agree. I think, and it has to come from several things, right? On the one hand, you need a culture change. But on the other hand, you also need complaint mechanisms, action being taken uh, for people in authority to take this seriously. So this relates in some ways to a show that we started our entire week with, right? The question of um, NOMA, which is closing because they said mm -hmm. their, their system was just unsustainable and the acknowledgement of the mental health toll that it had taken, not just on the people who admitted that they had done the bullying, but on the people who had been bullied. And I think that reflects this idea of, well, this is a hard industry and we have to build you up this way. And whether we've gone too far with the system to recognise even what is bullying um, I think is is important and, and I don't know whether, you know, kind of when we say bullying has to stop, right how does it stop? Is it just as simple as everyone suddenly getting nice? Um, is it everyone doing endless trainings? Is it um, putting the stick before the carrot? You know, th there are so many things that come into play here well, Vardin says the ministry should look into the health system seriously and reform it drastically. The older generation should stop telling during our time we could do this and that. Look into the younger generation's thoughts. The hours of working on call systems should change. Doctors are not cheap slaves. Give serious thought into the mental health of doctors and look into and also look into the welfare of health officers. Provide safe and healthy environment. Agreed. I, I think um, agreed really on all fronts. Um, earlier, our guest, Dr. Koswi, 
speaking, mentioned um, age aging in relation to mental health. And I'd like to close with this from Charles, who says... More hospices are needed to care for the elderly who are with terminal illnesses. Uh, the MOH should allocate funds for the renovation of houses contributed by owners to turn them to hospice centres. And I think there's something there about hospice, but I think there's also something there just about long-term care because there there are people who require around-the-clock care who are not terminal, and, and that's something to talk about as well. Anyway, big topic. Uh, thank you, everybody, for sending through your messages. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.